You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Dan Purcell, who is using Django and Python to build an e-commerce store for a jewelry company. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here, Nick. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about this site? Sure. Uh, my name is Dan, like you said. I run a small boutique uh, agency. We've been in business for about 15 years, and I consider myself a tech entrepreneur. Uh, we do uh, a bunch of work for various clients, as well as build out some of our own projects uh, for profit. Um, one of the most technically challenging and exciting projects we do is for a company called Paparazzi Accessories. They are an online um, uh, multi-level marketing, uh, network marketing, direct sales company that, has, that they sell jewelry in like a home party model. And that whole industry has changed a lot over the past six or seven years as a lot has moved online instead of in home parties. And we've been part of that technical growth uh, in building out their infrastructure to help this company grow to um, seven, eight figures. It's been really fun. Wow, very cool. Seven or eight figures. Like, what does that translate back to, like, traffic? I mean, monthly visitors or transactions or whatever? Yeah, uh, at their peak, the, the website will sustain about 300 mm -hmm. orders a second. So um, a lot of traffic. Wow. Yeah, it's hard to like even conceptualize 300 a second because it's like by the time you get to one minute, it's like you've already processed tens of thousands of them, or maybe. Lots of orders. Yep, definitely. They have a massive warehouse and they're, they're just pumping out orders all day long. Yeah, it must be fun to be uh, the warehouse worker there. Yes, <laughs> sure. So as for the site, how long has it been up and running for? We've been working on it for six years now, uh, since 2014. Okay. And do you recall, because I know six years is kind of a long time ago, but do you remember how long it took to get like an MVP up? Probably a few months. At the time, the company was rather small and they needed, they had a system. They weren't very happy with it. They heard about us. Uh, they're in our town. So we drove and, you know, met with them and kind of got a really good idea of what they needed. Uh, and then we, we, we started on a smallish project for them and that smallish project uh, just we just kept adding on and adding on and until it's pretty much uh, we've re, we, we've redesigned their entire website their e-commerce system we've developed a mobile app for them plus we've done a lot of programming back-end development for their business where they actually manage their warehouse and their warehouse employees with the whole order picking packing and shipping system is all uh, applications that we've developed for them really streamline their company. Yeah, very cool. It's like you're, you're building basically like a custom platform for them, like end-to-end. -end. That's right. Yeah. So how many people were working on this project, specifically the site component? Uh, there's uh, about two or three of us. We keep our team small and agile. And the client, they have their own graphic designer and things like that. So we, but like internally on our team, we're a programming company. So that, that'd be us, just about two or three people. Okay, very nice. So speaking of programming, uh, what motivated you to use Django and Python in the end? Great question. We're big Python, Django nuts. We've been using it since uh, uh, 2007 when uh, Django version 0 0.96 came out. So we've been using uh, Django in our projects for a very long time. Pretty adept at it. At another... This is probably for another topic for another time, but there was a we had a time where we we did e-commerce sites for a niche industry, the sewing and quilting industry of all industries, if you can imagine, where we were we built a custom shopping cart system in Django for uh, for basically stores that sold fabric online. And this this will all tie into paparazzi in just a second. Uh, what made the shopping cart unique is most online stores, you can only sell products in whole numbers because you only buy one book, or two books, or one t-shirt. You don't buy half a t-shirt or a quarter of a book, right? 
But when it comes to selling fabric, people place orders for fabric in fractions, like I want a half a yard of this and a quarter yard of that. So coming up with a shopping cart system that catered specifically for this, for this industry's needs, which was going online a lot at that time, was, uh, was needed. So we, we put together pretty good, and I think in the end we had about five or 600 clients using this shopping cart system that we've developed. So we took a lot of our expertise from e-commerce in the Django world, um, and since then we've done a ton of custom e-commerce for various projects. So when we sat down with paparazzi, we were able to bring to them uh, experience having developed five to six hundred different online stores with each, with their own little customizations if needed, and kind of kind of bring that to them. Yeah, that is no joke. Five six hundred different stores. Uh, definitely keep them busy. Yes, it was very busy. So when it comes to uh, the Django side, like pretty obvious why you picked it. Been working with it since two thousand seven. <laughs> but like, what makes you excited about using Django in this app? Like, are there some features of Django that just really help you helped you build it? Like a custom admin or some other stuff? I think in the very beginning, what attracted us to Django, this is way back in 2007. It was the custom admin. That was really attractive. At the time, we were evaluating Ruby on Rails, Symfony, CakePHP, and Django. And there's a few others too. Each of us in the company kind of took one and had to like go through the tutorials and kind of become its champion. And then we'd hash it out and debate over which one's better. <laughs> and Django won. And I, the admin was attractive. And also, we just really liked the Python programming language. And we could see there a lot of benefits to the ability to scale. We liked Django's ability to reuse apps and like components on the back end like you would just by sharing apps. So we could see a vision for us. At the time, we're really focused on pumping out a ton of e-commerce sites, how we could like make a shopping cart app here and a blog app here and like a photo gallery app there and all these Django components as apps, deploy them across these sites and then modify them with templates or extending the Python classes and to add additional functionality if we needed, if a client needed some, something a little extra. So we really like the flexibility the scalability and extensibility of Python. And I personally really like the ORM features of Django and how that works. Late, these days, almost all of our Django programming, we use um, we just use the Django REST framework for. So we, and all the front end work is taken care of. We, we use Vue, uh, Vue.js for the front end and just talk over APIs that we develop. And it, we really like that uh, stack. That architecture works really well for a lot of our client sites. Okay, let's put that on hold for a second and just rewind a little bit and talk a little bit more about those Django apps. So for the paparazzi site, do you want to walk us through maybe like a high level overview of like what type of apps you have? Oh, wow. Um, I don't, I'd have to look at it to tell you. We probably have about a dozen or so apps. A lot of them are, I think, all, almost all the functionality is in like one or two main apps. And the bulk of it is the shopping cart system, the e-commerce system, uh, and related to that is everything else. Paparazzi, they're, they're, they're MLM members or people who sell for paparazzi. They call them consultants, fashion consultants. They buy the jewelry at wholesale and they sell it retail and it's always five dollars retail uh, uh, for a necklace or earrings or whatever so um, it's inexpensive jewelry is what they're selling they need a way to log in and check um, what their sales are like and what their team how their team is performing so we've provided you know information like that f for their members to log in and see but there's this whole nother layer that they never see and that's that's really for the you know the owners of the company they can log in and instantaneously see like in a dashboard how many orders per second they're getting what are the most common checkout problems that they're seeing what's the server load they have um, close to uh, 40 servers running uh, very various different things uh, we can talk about specifics in a moment if you like but so, so there's all these little different components, and um, we, 
we use a lot of web sockets on the front end so, so to have a lot of live updating and real-time functionality, even in the shopping cart system for the customer to see. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of little moving parts. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to those custom dashboards, is that all just custom uh, UIs that you've written then with the view front end with the API backend? Yes. Yep. Okay. Before we go a little deeper into that one, uh, how do you have the code base split up here? Is it one monorepo or split up? It's uh, one monorepo. Okay. And then the app itself, is it just like a typical monolithic app, backend, frontend, both concluded? Yes. Well, yes, yes and no. The, so the front end, except for like the home page and a few, you know, flat pages, like like the main application part of the site is written in Vue.js. Okay, but that that code itself though is just sitting there in the same repo. Yes, I'm not I'm not saying that's like the best way to do it. That's just the way it is. <laughs> we we manage. Uh-huh. It seems to work, right? You have two or three people working on a site dealing with like pretty intense load, right? I mean, this is definitely a no joke type of site. And this is a project, remember, that started really small and it's kind of ex- really grown over the years. It's it's really morphed and evolved as time went on. So. Actually, we do have a separate repo for the um, warehouse management system. So that is that is a separate repo. Okay, and that's kind of like sort of going back into like the platform component of this, right? Like ancillary apps that you've created off on the side. Right, uh-huh, yeah. Okay, so as for the WebSocket setup, it seems like it would be maybe challenging to you know handle that many WebSocket connections like concurrently. Uh, what do you guys use to, to deal with that? Uh, we use channels. That's a Django channels project. We've uh, experimented a little bit with Starlet, which is not Django, but it's a Python-based um, asynchronous server. So yeah, we, we, we're excited about asynchronous Django coming out in the future. We hope that's adopted widely because there's a lot we can use for sure with this project that would be handled asynchronously. Okay, so that Starlet app server is an alternative then to G-Unicorn or UWSGI, I guess? Yes. Okay, so in other words, like you're not using a third-party like WebSocket service. This is all just internally through the Django app. Right, yep. Very cool. So going back to that view setup with the API backend, was that a decision you made early on? And if so, like for uh, what reasons was that? Um, we wanted a very reactive front end. Um, part of the... Probably the biggest challenge we face with this specific project with a customer checking out is every transaction has to end up eventually in a third party uh, database that we don't that we don't manage it's it's a it's a service that our client contracts with that's the one that records for compliance reasons every sale who who made the sale, who gets credit for the sale, so they can process uh, commissions, commission checks, uh, compliance, and all the laws and regulations that go around running a MLM company. We don't handle that. That, that, that piece is handled by, by this third-party system. And that third-party system has uh, SOAP APIs. Uh, they're, they're an old .NET uh, shop and their APIs are it, like sometimes you get a one second response. It, like it takes one second for an API call to respond. It's very slow. And when you magnify that by tens of thousands of people trying to check out, and if you have to wait one second for every order to process, then you could be waiting ten thousand seconds for your or, for your checkout to complete, and that's just unacceptable. So. We've had, but there was really, we've talked to them. There's really no way around working around their API. It's, it's, it's so central and critical to the way paparazzi operates. They need that system. So uh, we needed to trick the customer in some ways into making them feel like the checkout is smooth and quick, when in reality we're deferring as many tasks as, as we can to the back end. So we can create a really reactive front end. Uh, we use Vue.js to make, you know, you add to cart, boom, it's in your cart, and you go through checkout. We, we can handle credit card payment up front. 
And we do a pretty good job. It's not perfect, but we do a pretty good job of maintaining inventory. And that's the second thing that makes this project complicated is when paparazzi releases a new necklace, there's only like a couple hundred of them or a thousand of them. They, they don't do really large runs. And once that necklace is sold, it's gone. They don't, they don't do, uh, they don't remanufacture the same necklace. It's very much the fashion industry where they just come out with one style and that's all they have. And then they're moving on to the next thing. So as a paparazzi consultant, if you like that necklace, you better buy it now. Cause if you wait till tomorrow, it's not going to be there anymore. So it creates this like buying frenzy where people, the consultants like, they like something they're they got to buy it and buy it now and they they do their product releases um a, a few times a week at, at a certain time okay there's a, there's many many good things to unwind there before we continue onwards uh but one of the things like we recently said about you know that buying frenzy i'd be curious to see how you handle that like from the checkout point of view like imagine this like imagine you're on like amazon or whatever trying to buy an item you see that it's in stock when you're on you know, the product page. So you just add it to your cart and you start the checkout process. And let's say the item has whatever, 10 left in its inventory. Uh -huh. If by the time you get to the point where you're putting in your billing information and you go to pull the trigger to finalize the payment, do you just prevent that from happening at that point? Yeah, we do. And that's where WebSockets come in handy. Uh, we can tell them instantly the moment it's no longer available for them. Yeah, that's such like, I mean, it's a good problem to have if you're moving that much stock, but it's such a, like a weird user experience when it's like you're mid checkout and then it's like, well, sorry, the item you're just about to buy just got like out of stock. Right. Yep. So going back to like processing those things in the background, like those one second API calls to the SOAP server, uh, do you just have that all happening on the back end, like through Celery or something else? Yeah, that's right. We use Celery and that Celery, we... That's one of the things we have to monitor to make sure is running smoothly, is making sure that queue is getting through and those orders are actually really getting processed. Right. So when it comes to that celery setup, are you using some of their decorators for like rate limiting to make sure you don't hammer that API too fast? Uh, we're not worried about hammering their API too fast. Um, so no, we're not. Uh, and I, I think we've done a really good job of architecting our server setup to handle our celery queues. Uh, we have lots of workers and uh, they, just, they just do their job. Yeah, I'm excited to get to the, the server bits of this conversation, but before we get there, uh, maybe we can just talk a little bit more about like the rest of your tech stack. Like which database do you use? Like what's the backend for celery? Is it Redis? Are you using Docker and all that fun stuff? Oh, sure. We're using Redis for the backend for um, uh, for Celery. We also use Redis for the backend for our Django channels, which is the socket, web socket stuff. We use uh, Postgres for our database, and we've got, uh, uh, I think, four really beefy Postgres servers running in production, um, replicating each other. So we have really fast reads across four beefy Postgres servers. Oh, wow. What about Docker? Is that being used at any point or no? No, we we haven't used Docker. Um, maybe one day we'll get to using Docker when we want to like quickly spin up a server or spin something down. All the costs and benefits for us in this specific instance doesn't really make sense to, to go that route. Okay. Now, when it comes to that uh, Postgres replica setup, are you using any specific like Python or Django library to make that work? Uh, the replication, we've, we've tried a few things. We've, I think we've settled on using Postgres's built-in replication. It's, it works great. Um, and on the Django, we have a custom router that reads, that's smart to read from multiple servers, but only write to one server. Ah, yeah, that, that's kind of what I was getting at. Like, you know, all of your reads happen from database A, but then all the writes happen on database B. So that is a totally hand-rolled solution that you guys made? In the end, for replication, we tried a few things, and it just, the, just a solution that worked better for us at this time was just to write our own router. Okay, so thinking about uh, home-rolled stuff, maybe we can talk about the opposite of that. 
uh, if you know off the top of your head, like what are some libraries that you've added to your project that really helped you build this app, like Python or Django specific? Let's see. Um, there's an interesting one. I'm just reading through the requirements text now. At one time, we were getting a lot of uh, login attempts by a bot. And there's a Django project called Django Axes that, uh, that helped us kind of combat that. This isn't Django specific, but we do have a Slack bot that we've programmed that works with our client's Slack, company Slack channel that alerts them of certain activity going on on the website. That's, that's always fun. Is that like semi-real-time sales related stuff? Yep, or like, um, like an announcement to the general channel is made when the new products are released. Because the, the, the function of releasing new, the, you know, the new products is done, on, is done in the Django app. And it's important. Now, now people can stand by the call centers ready to take calls, you know, whatever. Everyone knows, okay, the release is hit today. And so that's done over Slack. Critical server problems that might arise can also uh, get Slack to us, so we see them before before, so we can correct them before it becomes too big of a problem. Okay. What about things like searching in your site? Do you have like full text search set up or no? Um, that's a great question. We don't. We don't, because at any given time, they only offer about four hundred products for sale at any one given time. They take one off before putting a new one on, or they sell out of one item before putting a new one on. So customers don't need something like a crazy, fancy text search system. Right, so this is like a hyper-optimized system just for selling a ton of quantity of very few SKUs. Yes. So going back to the rest of your tech stack here, do you have something sitting in front of your app server like Nginx or no? Yes, we use, we have two, three Nginx servers sitting in front. Wow, not one, not two, but three. Yes, we have three. Okay, do you want to get into the details on how that is all set up? The third one is uh, dedicated to Sentry and uh, their warehouse management system that we've developed. We use Sentry for error logging and collection and management. Nice. So how much traffic do you typically send through Sentry? Hopefully not too much. Oh, but... hopefully not too much. If there's like, we had a problem last week where uh, one of the Redis servers went down and we're getting so many errors, it bogged down the, the Sentry server so bad. It took us a while to figure out, uh, to get the system to calm down enough to actually find out what the error was that we could correct it in the first place. So that, that, caused, that caused a bottleneck. Well, now I see why you have your own separate Nginx just for Sentry. Yeah, that's, that's so that we don't bog down the rest of the system with, uh, because some error is getting reported too loudly. So we kind of have that off in a separate thing. Uh, we have two, the, the two other production uh, Nginx we use as like a reverse proxy load balancers. And there's two of them. Uh, we just have the DNS for the site set. DNS for paparazziaccessories.com listing both of those Nginx servers in the A records for some round robining of GNS traffic. And that's just in case also if one server ever goes down, the entire site does get done because that's like a single point of failure for us if that Nginx server goes down. Right. Um, the engine, yeah. Oh no, I was going to say, I'm kind of dying now to, to talk a little bit more about like where this is hosted in your server setup. But if you want to go into what you were about to say before that, oh, yeah. go for it. We use DigitalOcean. Oh, very cool. For our server setup. And so we kind of use Nginx kind of on the front end. Nginx serves all static content. We also use Google Cloud Storage for static content. Um, and the application is handled by a number of application servers on the back end. Okay. And now for that Nginx setup, do you also handle like SSL starts with Let's Encrypt or no? Yeah, we use Let's Encrypt. Yep. Very cool. So going back to the DO setup, do you use any of their managed services, like their load balancer or like their managed Postgres or no? Uh, no, because those things didn't exist at the time when we started this project. 
do you think like given today, if you were to create your project as like a brand new project, would you consider using that at least or no? Yeah, we definitely would. Okay. So you mentioned how you have all sorts of background workers happening at scale. Do you want to maybe go over like what types of servers you have and what their specs are and what they do? Um, I don't know off the top of my head exactly what all of the specs are of all the servers. Um, some of them are really small. Most of them we just go with one of the larger um, uh, offerings that DigitalOcean has. Some of them have up to 40 CPUs. We have to do a lot of crunching, a lot of information. Um, so I guess it, it, others, we aren't very CPU bound, just more IO bound, like those that use a lot of web sockets. So we don't need a ton of CPUs there, or we don't need powerful CPUs. We need a lot of concurrency, but um, we don't need a lot of CPU. So um, those are more medium sized uh, droplets. That's, that's the term that DigitalOcean uses for their VMs. Right. Maybe we can just break the problem down a little bit then. Like, do you know roughly how many web servers you run or no? About a dozen web servers, production servers. And, and all of those, are they all about the same specs or are they kind of just like sort of kind of all over the place? They're a little all over the place. In the beginning, we didn't need very large servers. So like the first, the, the older ones are smaller. And as we get smarter and more experienced, we're like, it's... It's so much more effective to go with one of the bigger droplets for the bigger for the bigger uh, for newer stuff. So as we deploy new or every time we need new, we always tend to like buy up a little more than we did last time for every new server we add on. But we and we have gone in the past and just turned off and destroyed a lot of our old old small stuff. We're slowly migrating things just to use larger production servers because it's better value for us, less management. We use um, Ansible to manage our servers to keep everything current and up to date and to provision new servers and to get everything together. And that's made things easy. And it's, but still, it's uh, just, I think there's more value when I can manage one big server than a dozen tiny servers. Yeah, it definitely makes it a lot easier for sure. So going back to those servers, what distro do you use? Ubuntu server. Okay. Is that just like the latest LTS based on whenever you created the server? Um, yep. And we've upgraded our old ones. I think we're still at 1804. We're going to wait for like uh, the 20.04.1 or 0.2 to come out. And then we'll look at upgrading our servers to that. Right. Good call. Yeah, I'm the same way when it comes to that. It's like, it's nice that the new LTS came out, but I don't want to be patient zero for like just when it first comes out especially not when your type of site where that much traffic, right? Right. So going back to the Ansible setup, I'm a huge fan of Ansible. I've been using it for like, I don't know, six or seven years uh -huh. now. A fantastic tool. What has your experience been like with that? It's great. Um, it can be frustrating when you get to the, towards the end of your, uh, of your playbook and there's a problem. <laughs> you fix it. You have to rerun the whole playbook to get to know if you solve the problem. So... That's a little annoying sometimes, but in general, we like Ansible. It's, it's a, it keeps everything nice and consistent. Yeah, if I have one complaint about Ansible, it is that it is not the fastest tool ever to go and run those tasks. Like, even to do nothing, like just to determine if things changed or not, and you're running a couple hundred tasks across, you know, a dozen servers or something, that, you know, that takes multiple minutes to happen. It does, uh-huh. What I... What I like about Ansible is it's SSH based. I don't have to install some like puppet client or something like that on all the servers. Yeah, that's definitely what sold me on it initially. Yeah, that's a very, very big one. Also, it's not, you know, it totally helps too that it's, it's written in Python. So, you know, if you ever needed to write an Ansible module for whatever reason, yeah, you write at home basically. Uh huh. Do you want to go maybe a little into detail about your Ansible setup? Like, you know, we're not going to go super deep in the woods, but like, you know, what types of things are you installing and configuring on these servers? Sure. Uh, I'm installing uh, Ubuntu packages or Debian packages. Just, uh, you know, making sure certain packages are installed. Uh, we have a pretty uh, 
you know, very uh, detailed IP tables that we generate and we apply to the servers. And that's, that's templated because we only allow connections from IPs from um, other DigitalOcean droplets that we've set up. So we have an internal database of all of our um, DigitalOcean droplets and their IP addresses. So we make it really clear what connections we allow inside IP tables. So that's that's um, we do. So that's that's pretty extensive in there. Um, we set up a custom Etsy host table. We do. Um, we get our Django. Well, we don't install Django all the way. For that, we just use our virtual environment setup. We have it. We use Fab, uh, Fabric, for for deployment of our application to the servers. But we use Ansible to kind of get the infrastructure set up. Right. Yeah, that seems to be a very common pattern. Like that's how I use it too. It's like you know, Ansible gets the server ready, but I don't deploy my code with Ansible. That's always either you know get pushed to CI and then CI deploys or something else maybe. Uh huh. Yeah. We use Fabric for push to deploys. At one time, we explored having automated tests and having CI push, uh, but it it just wasn't as efficient for us when we wanted to move fast. Um, we kind of kept finding ourselves uh, fighting the system too much. So although we do still write tests and we have we do run tests. We don't have that auto deploy. We we manually deploy, and we use Fabric for that. Okay, and I think we'll get there in one sec. But I just have one more question about, uh, you know, your hosting setup. Do you use any automated tools to provision the actual DigitalOcean servers and any other resources on the DO side of things, like Terraform, or no? No, nope. I log in and do it manually. Okay, is that something? maybe you look into in the future or you just never got into it or you just don't care too much? Because it sounds like you do have you know, quite a lot of servers to manage. That's a lot of like button clicking. Uh, I, you know, first of all, I guess I don't know, I didn't know too much about Terraform in the past. And now it's like, we're probably adding a server to every three months or every four months. So it's not very common that we're just adding servers. And if I go in and manually do it, I can like, really check to make sure this is what I want because the server configuration might change depending on what I would intend to use a server for. Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And by the way, you know, this is an e-commerce store and somehow we didn't get to talking about this yet. I totally slipped my mind to talk about this. Uh, what payment gateway do you use to process all of these payments or multiple if you happen to support many? Authorize.net. Ah, very cool. So I don't think there's been a single guest out of like, this is episode 52, I think. Uh, no one has been using that yet. Do you want to give us like a TLDR on, on that payment gateway and sure. why you chose that one? I think it's the granddaddy of payment gateways. They've been around the longest. Long, long predates Stripe and PayPal and, and, and those others. The nice thing about authorize.net is you're not tied. A lot of the more modern gateways, you have your gateway and your processor is, built, is tied in together. Like, um, But with authorize.net, you can... Your processor is different from the gateway. So in this case, our client's uh, processor might be, I don't know, uh, Bank of Omaha or Wells Fargo or uh, First Data, wh whoever their ISO is for, their, for the payment processing. That's independent of the actual gateway. And so all the gateway functions are handled through Authorize.net. And Authorize.net takes care of uh, the connection between that and the processor. Interesting. So it's kind of like a lower level, like nitty gritty solution where if you need to use like a bank as a back end or something like that, like your clients probably, or correct me if I'm wrong here, they needed to do a little bit more work to be able to accept payments, I guess, with this setup. Um, I've, I've used Authorize.net and Stripe for a lot of my projects. Stripe is very developer friendly, very cust you know, you can get your Stripe account set real quick, but Authorize.net really isn't that bad either. Um, the problem with Stripe is they're going to take 2.9% plus, is it 25 cents or 35 cents per transaction? Whereas Authorize.net is a flat monthly fee, like, I don't know, 30 bucks a month, plus a very small transaction fee. But on the back end, the processor 
that you shot the market for the best rate you can get for for the processor. So if you're doing hundreds of millions or even billions in credit card a year, you don't want to be stuck with a stripe at 2.9% when you can go and get 1.8% elsewhere. Right. Yeah. That 1% is massive at, at that type of scale. Or even honestly, like if you're just selling, well, I don't want to say only because it would be pretty sick to have a business where you're selling like, you know, a million dollars a year. Like that's going to make a big difference, that 1%. Right. Right. I did the math once of what it would, where the, the cost benefit kind of comes together. Uh, assuming that, you know, one hand like Stripe, Stripe and PayPal, pretty much the same rate, 2.9% plus 35 cents a transaction. Uh, no monthly fee compared to like a more traditional bank merchant account where you're at like 2.2% um, with 10 cents per transaction, but they have a $30 a month minimum. And usually it's around the, around the $5,000 mark. It makes more, you will start saving money going with uh, a traditional bank. Right. But then you're also on the hook, I guess, for maybe implementing some of the nice things that Stripe do for you, like invoice webhooks and all that other stuff? Yeah, that's true. Um, but Authorize.net's been around a while, and they have a pretty, uh, they've got a pretty good API also, so. Right, that's true, right? It's like, yeah, you're not interfacing with that, um, you know, the backend backend, you're just interfacing with Authorize.net, right? Correct, yeah. They may not have the webhook thing, but they do have the concept of a customer vault. Um, they can do recurring billing, you can do partial refunds, full refunds. You can void transactions, refunds. Um, okay, cool. So maybe now we can switch gears back over to your deploy process with Fab. Do you want to just walk us through what it's like to develop some feature locally? And then like, how does that end up in production? And like, especially you know, near the end, like how do you update those Nginx load balancers too? Oh, okay, sure. So let's say I want to make a change somewhere on the Django side. I edit my file, save it. I commit it to our Git repo. And I run a fab command that uh, tells the remote servers to pull the latest changes and restart the production server. We use UWSGI instead of uh, GUnicorn or, you know, uh, other things. We use, we call it UWSGI. I don't know how others say it. It's funny, some words are only read, not spoken, and that's one of them. So we call it UWSGI or UWSGI, and we really like the way that setup is. Um, it, uh, I'm, I'm sure others do it too, but you can just touch the comp file and it reloads. So anyway, our fab command uh, logs in remotely over SSH and takes care of the git pulling and... Uh, it'll collect static if we need it to. It will, you know, run Bower if we need to pull in some, I know that's an older technology, but pull in some JavaScript libraries or CSS libraries. Um, it will, uh, it'll run NPM run build for our front end uh, view stack if we need it to. It will, you know, run migrations if there's migrations to run it'll restart the site if we need it to so it's it's a pretty robust deploy process for us okay and when it comes to those database migrations then is that happening while the other servers are still online uh-huh yep and have you done any like defensive coding mechanisms or strategies to kind of allow two different versions of your app to be running with like a new database migration like have you ever run into issues with that Hmm, not that I know of, not with database, but you do bring up a good point. There are many times where we want to experiment with new code on the site. And we found a Django project called Waffle, um, Django Waffle. And it's a really simple uh, Django app, but it will, you can allocate what percentage of traffic you want to tag. And then uh, like you can use it in like a template tag or in a view. And it's just part of the request object. And you can see if, if they're waffled on or waffled off. So if you want to send 10% of your, your traffic of your users to, uh, to, to see this new feature, you can just log in Django admin, click on the, whatever you named that specific feature, 
and say, you know, we're going to waffle 10% of traffic for this. And then, boom, 10% of the traffic will see that particular function that we just programmed. And mm. eventually... Sorry to interrupt you here, but how does that end up working in practice? Like, how does waffle know that if, like, you mean eight other people went to the site and only 10% of those can see it, how does it know after it served me, it won't serve you because, you know, you're no longer part of the 10%. Like, is, like where does that stake get saved? I think it stays, stays with the session. So it tagged, it, it'll tag you in that session. So when you reconnect, you know, a moment later, you're still in the waffle group and I was not in the waffle group. Oh, okay. So when a new session's created, you know, it, it randomly selects so that 10% of the time, you or whatever you set it to be, let's say 10%, you'll be tagged part of that group to see this specific new feature. That way, it's it's kind of a lazy man's uh, blue-green setup. We can kind of test new features and see how they go on a small scale, and then gradually um, bump up that percentage, you know, to 100% once you're confident in that specific feature, and now everyone sees it. Right. You know, you classify that as like a lazy man way to do that, but it's a pretty cool way to do that, right? Because it's almost like you kind of get to know exactly what's happening on your servers. Like you're never wondering, like, I hope this code works when I deploy it. It's like it's already deployed. It's just like you're just turning on to more people. So it's like more well-tested code. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that type of thing. Like just feature flags and yeah, gets really fun. Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with like rolling restarts then? Or do you just restart everything at once and there's a little bit of downtime? Yeah, probably. <laughs> there must be a little bit of downtime. It's, it's just, we will, we don't. There are definitely peak hours and not peak hours. When a new release hits, that's peak hours and you don't touch the servers at all during that, during those two or three hours of very he heavy shopping. But, you know, uh, you know, mornings and evenings are low traffic times. And so we can restart the sites, we push new code then, and you don't, you don't, uh, it, it's not a problem. Okay. So those Nginx servers sitting there, you know, they are technically acting as a load balancer, but you're not really, you know, modifying the Nginx config to take servers in and out of the load balancer based on like if they're up or down. Right. We, we rarely touch that Nginx config. Once it's set, it's set. We don't, we'll, we'll touch it if we have a new server to add, but even Nginx itself is a really smooth restarting system. Yeah, Nginx is one of those amazing tools where it's like you modify its config value, then most of the time you can just reload it and it's like a zero downtime reload just for the Nginx itself. Right, right. But when we restart, when we add a new feature, it's usually, let's say on the Python Django side, that's going to, uh, that doesn't affect Nginx at all. That goes to the production server and you restart that Django application, the uWSGI application. Right, yeah, because Nginx is on its own server, right? Right, if we make a modification to the front end, like the Vue.js application, then we just rebuild static and then, uh, the next customer to get that page is just going to get that version of the new JavaScript and CSS. Right. When it comes to those static files, then do you directly serve them from Nginx all the time, or do you have a CDN in front of that? Uh, for those, we serve from Nginx. And then for things like product images or um, things like that, we serve out of Google Cloud Storage, which kind of acts as our CDN. Ah, so those are like when a user, you know, a site owner uploads an image of something, then it just goes directly to there? Yep, like a product image. Uh huh. Okay, cool. So going back to your deploy process uh, once more here, how do you deal with secret management like API keys? Uh, great question. We use, um, that's, that is a complicated setup. We have a encrypted Git repo that contains our site's secrets in a .env file. So it's like environment. Uh, variable type file and those are deployed by hand to every server um, and then in settings py we read that .env file into settings and it's like environment variables 
So when you say it's encrypted, then it's encrypted sitting on... Well, actually, we didn't talk about this. Is it on GitHub somewhere, like in a private repo? Uh, we use GitLab in a private repo. Okay. So it's sitting there encrypted, you know, at rest in GitLab. And then you encrypted it using only keys that exist on those servers, I guess, to be able to decrypt it. Um, so the it's the Git repo is encrypted. So you, if you were to clone the repo, you wouldn't be able to read any of the files unless you knew the 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 key we used to encrypt it with. And we keep that key uh, just just pretty well hidden. That's not published at all. Right. It's somewhere sitting on your server or your production servers, I mean. No, no, it's not sitting on a production servers. Um, so we we uh, open up a you know vim on the server and copy and paste the contents of the file over and hit save. <laughs> so ah, okay. it's we don't like there's no copy process or there's, it's 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 manual those environment files are manually deployed so that they don't have to be like we don't have to manage it on on some foreign server. Right. And then only like a super trusted developer would have access to be able to do such a thing. Right. Right. So if there are changes we need to make to secrets or whatever, we have a fab command that will make that process a little easier for us. But um, uh, it's it is a manual process at first. Right. Fortunately, I would imagine those type of secrets don't get changed too, too often. No, they don't. Right. It's like adding a very big new feature that might need it or maybe like re-rolling some API keys or whatever. Right. And the Django package we use for that is called Django Environ. Okay. Is that different than the Python like .env package? Maybe it's built on top of it. Okay. I was just curious because actually I'm not a Django developer, but I know Python.env is sort of pretty popular. Okay. So going back to your app now, like how have you planned for disasters and unexpected events? Do you back up these databases on a very regular basis? Like, what about those uploaded files? Oh, no. No, we haven't done. Just kidding. <laughs> oh, just kidding. Yes, we've done uh, quite a bit. So first, our first line of defense is um, we do a daily database dump that we rotate. So if the, if the database, like, we, we wrote some awful query or we accidentally dropped an important table, we can recover it quickly. That's never happened, thank goodness. Um, the second, and the second line of defense is on many of the droplets, especially the more mission critical ones, we, uh, we use DigitalOcean's automatic backup service. So if there is ever a problem, and that, that happens weekly, we can go back to the most recent snapshot that was auto backed up. It, at the most, it'd be a week old, and we can restore that. Um, the actual application itself, um, if an application server were to completely crash and die, it doesn't affect our the site other than performance, because we can just deploy another server, um, deploy the code and the application to that server, and then have the load balancer just including that now in the pool, and it'll be up and running because. All, all of that uh, intel on the application and that specific stack is scripted. Okay. Actually, uh, to talk about that for a second, when it comes to updating the load balancer, you know, to put a new server IP in there, is that being done through Ansible or something else? Uh, we, use, we use a custom application that we've built. We call Autosite. You specify what servers are and, and a whole bunch of things, and it... In the back, and then it under the hood uses Ansible to deploy the Nginx configurations to the Nginx servers. Okay, and did you build that because it's like it got really tedious trying to keep track of all your servers in Ansible and Fab, I guess, or no? We wrote that because that was written back in the day. We don't, we no longer uh, do this uh, in today's business, and that's a topic for another discussion. But back in my back back in my previous life. When we had those hundreds of quilting stores and hundreds of e-commerce sites, it was crazy to try to maintain all those sites by hand. So we, we wrote a pretty sophisticated system we called Autosite that managed hundreds of Django sites across many servers, uh, across many load balancers, 
you know, Nginx load balancers. So that that was that product that we had developed that manages all of those site configurations. Okay. So you basically made a tool to automate your automation tools. Yes, exactly. And now we don't host those hundreds of sites anymore. We, we only have, you know, a couple dozen now, but we still use that tool to manage the configuration because it works so well. Okay. And going back to like disaster recovery stuff, uh, where do you go to access your logs? Um, if it's a access log, that will be on the Nginx servers. If it's a um, production server, like on the Django side, if it's like a, if it's errors we're getting, hopefully we can find them in Sentry. We use Supervisor, which is a application that runs applications and makes sure they're always running and keeps them up. If they die for whatever reason, it respawns it. That's a, a it's it, it's a Linux a daemon tool called Supervisor. Supervisor executes the UWSGI or the UWSGI instances. So Supervisor itself keeps a set of logs of all the output coming from uh, UWSGI. So we can check Supervisor's logs for uh, details if something's not working right. Okay, very cool. So going back to disaster recovery, when it comes to things like alerting and, and getting monitors set up, do you use like DigitalOcean's built-in tools for that? To be like, hey, you know, if this web server, if the CPU is like over 80% for five minutes, then someone gets notified? No, I use Nagios for that. Okay, do you want to give us a TLDR on that? Sure. Oh, have you? Uh, so Nagios is really old. I started using Nagios probably in 2000 or 1999. It's, it's a set of Perl scripts, really. Um, and it... Uh, it works really, really well. It's been around for years. Nagios itself has like a pretty sophisticated, uh, like a web application you can log into and get all your servers uptime and status. Uh, you can write your own plugins really easily. So, like I've written plugins that monitor RAID status for light servers with a, with a RAID card. I can run a, you know, a little shell command and capture the output and return that back to Nagios and. If it's within a certain tolerance, it's okay. Otherwise, it goes to warning or critical status. I've used Nagios to monitor server temperatures when that was an issue. Um, when we use DigitalOcean, I don't worry too much about like temperature of servers, but um, Nagios is like a really easy way to monitor pretty much anything you can write a shell script for. Okay, so setup-wise, do you just run that on a server as an agent and then access its web UI somewhere? Uh-huh. Well, I have an Android app that ties into my Nagio server. So if there is an issue, my phone buzzes with the specifics on what, what's, what the issue is. High load, low disk space, um, too many processes running, whatever it is I'm monitoring on the server. And I have Nagios uh, auto set up when I, when I provision a new server using Ansible. Very cool. So did something ever happen in the past where you got notified and it was like, uh-oh, I need to fix this? Um, all the time. Uh, this is unrelated to Paparazzi accessories, but earlier today I got a high load alert on one of my PHP servers where I run a few WordPress sites. So um, I logged in, checked, uh, checked the log file, and sure enough, I was getting, um, you know, Someone was trying the wp-login.php, just trying someone to log into WordPress, like, you know, 10 connections a second. So, yeah, it, it alerted me right away, and I was able to find out why that was. Um, I found their IP address and blocked it. Nice. So did you block that at the Nginx level or somewhere else? I blocked it at the Nginx level. Right. What is it, like the denialist or something like that? Probably. I, I don't use that. I just... Maybe I'm a little more hardcore. I just put them right in IP tables. Oh, okay. I run the IP tables minus I input dash, you know, S IP address dash J drop. Right. That's kind of cool because you're now dealing with it at like one level above the Nginx level, kind of. Uh-huh. Yep. At the firewall level. Yep. In the Linux kernel. Interesting fact. My first job right out of college 
was Linux kernel development, specifically in the IP tables space of the Linux kernel. So I wrote custom IP tables uh, plugins uh, for this security company I was working for. So it was a ton of fun writing, like getting getting in the the, the C code, the really deep code of the networking stack in, in the Linux kernel. So you're basically one of like 15 people on earth who really deeply understand IP tables? <laughs> I did at one time. <laughs> that was... That's been years ago, but that was my first job out of college. I loved it. So going back to like malicious users, you know, you mentioned that that person was trying to get into your WordPress admin. Have you ever dealt on the paparazzi side of, you know, people trying to just hammer the site? Have you any experience like protecting yourself against a DDoS attack? No, I don't have experience with like a massive DDoS attack. Um, if I were, I would probably rate limit. I probably won't affect a distributed denial of service attack, but um, I'd probably rate limit by IP on the Nginx level and then move down that way. I, I haven't had to deal with that. So now that this podcast is live and some hacker is listening to this, please don't attack this site. Move on to someone else's site. Or, or maybe I'll just edit this and no one will even hear it. There you go. <laughs> I mean, but even if they do attack the site, they don't get anything. We don't store credit card numbers. Um, they might get servers to use, but they're not. Um, they're heavily monitored and very closely watched. There's no special passwords or anything on there. So if you get it, it's like the. Pr I don't think. It's, it's a prize worth uh, fighting for to to attack or bring down this site, I hope. Exactly right. It's like maybe they get a $5 necklace for free. Maybe. Yes, right. <laughs> so do you have any uh, external sites monitoring your site, something like an Uptime Robot or Ping Demo, anything like that? No, uh, just, and just uh, Nagios. And Nagios is run externally. I have a dedicated server running in a data center uh, here in my hometown, you know, off-site, not connected to DigitalOcean or anywhere else I host my sites. So that kind of serves as my outside eye into monitoring and watching over things. Yeah, that was definitely floating around in my head. I'm like wondering, you know, what happens if DO goes down or, you know, it's very easy for the internal stuff to get broken and you wouldn't know from the outside world. Right. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are for building this app? Wow. Um, I know it sneaks up on you, that question. Start small and grow from there. Um, that's always worked well for us. Deploy early and deploy often. Uh, Automate as much as you can so that in the heat of the moment, you don't have to do a lot of critical thinking on the exact sequence of commands you need to type or do so that uh, you can focus on you know, your precious brain resources on, on what the critical issues are. Yeah, that's really good advice, especially that one about deploying early on because it's so easy to develop your app in secret. And then it's like, you know, one week before you plan to deploy, you're like, oh, okay, time to deploy the app. And then you just run into edge case after edge case. And then it's like you deploy your app and it's like, oh, all these things are going wrong. Yeah, I love the idea of like, you know, getting it up and out there, running live, maybe not sending live traffic to it, but then just get used to your deploy process. Right. Yep. So on the flip side to best tips and lessons learned, do you recall making any mistakes throughout this process that you kind of just fixed over time? I think if we were to start over today, we would architect it a little bit differently. There's um, specific mistakes we've made that we've learned from. Uh, I'll have to think on that one. That one's a great question, too. Uh, I'm sure there's many, many, but I can't think of a specific story that would be like, like off the top of my head, I can't think of a specific story of like, we did this, it was a big mistake, we had to throw it out, we went this other way instead, and we wish we had done that all along. And I'm sure that happens all the time. But um, it probably happens at such a small and common level that there's not like one like big thing that sticks out of my head 
Yeah, I totally get it. Like, here's a few, like, little tiny things that we wish we'd have known better. There are times when under a really heavy load in the past, we'd start, we'd get the most strange errors that we could not understand. And it seemed kind of random, really hard to track down. And it really bothered us. Uh, it turned out to be, like, um, adjusting the limits, like using U-limit on certain things on the server. And the reason why that was hard to track down is we thought we had set the limits, but setting a system-wide limit does not necessarily mean our like our UWSGI application or Redis or whatever picked up on those new limits. A lot of those applications have their own configuration files where, they, where you edit those to set their own limits. So we were unaware of that. So getting to know the individual applications and what what those configuration file options are, and sometimes are not even documented. And that that made little weird issues like that hard to track down. Yeah, that's definitely a, a somewhat common issue with the limit, but it's such an easy thing to get like, what the heck is going on? You know, especially if you start Googling for it, because you find like a hundred different tutorials about like, well, you need to edit this file, but then it's like, well, if you're using system D, it's actually this file instead. And it's like, you don't even know if the changes are having an effect. That's right, that's right. So Dan, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Nick. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything? Sure. You can reach me at uh, my website is velocitywebworks.com. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.